They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Talk to music. They say in August, baby, things start to slow down. Shit, you just ain't never had Craig come through your town. Cause I keeps it poppin' all summer long I drive the boat and bump the hot girl song Hey, hey, how's your week, how's your week, how's your week? How you doing this week? How's your week, how's your week, how's your week? How y'all doing this week? What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Hello, I'm so glad to be back with you for another week. Welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into popular culture. I'm your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I've been writing about pop culture for more than 20 years now. Soon to be 21. And you can read some of my music writing at rnbeing.com, although for real, for real, the site has been loading real slow. I think WordPress is trying to get me to do the paid thing. For some reason, I think they're deliberately slowing my shit down. So I'm going to get that fixed. But in the meantime, you know, like I said, it's slow. But I'm going to get it fixed. Um, I'm also an author who has written a number of books. The biography, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. Um, my memoir about being a grad school stripper hoe. All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. It's all about being in the strip clubs during the 90s. People are obsessed with the 90s now. Get yourself some little history. I be dancing to like, um, I be dancing like Mariah's Fantasy. I be dancing like um, the David Morales mix of Tony Braxton's You Make Me High. So you get all those moments. In fact, a lot of people said like after they read the book, they had to go on their little Spotify and like play some things that they didn't know those references or they have forgotten stuff. So it's interesting. I probably should have done a playlist for it. But anyway, lastly, um, my novel about three generations of black gay men looking for love. Who's your daddy? All three, but like if you bored in August, you don't got nothing to do. All three make great summer reads. Um, and then forthcoming and yes, it will be this year. I know it's getting late in the year, but it's definitely going to be this year. It's wrapping up. It's just, you know, I, have to, I mean, once I decide to do something, I have to do it in the way that I know I need to do it. But um, in any event, that project that I'm talking about is called Special, The Life and Art of Janet Jackson. And like I said, it is coming sooner than you, well, probably not sooner than you think, but it's coming. <laughs> it's coming soon. <laughs> So I also have a website where you can find links for the songs and the other stuff that I discuss on the show. It's easy to remember. It's craigspoplife.com. And I have an Amazon shop where I put all the books that I discuss on the podcast. Also easy to remember. Amazon.com slash shop slash craigspoplife. So again, there are a lot of 
um, you know, I have a lot of stuff out there that you can look in, look at, look, get into um, if you are so inclined. And as always, I thank everybody for their support. Um, so let's get into this week. I had really planned to do something entirely different this week. But when you wake up on a day and find out that Missy Elliott is releasing some new songs and a new video, for a person like me, that I'm that just has to I have to revise my I have to replan my day so I know that I'm somewhere at midnight where I can play it good volume, you know, whatever. And I also um definitely had to um revise the podcast plans. So, I mean, I just had, I'm just sharing with you. This is just my feeling. You know, she announced it like around two in the afternoon or whatever. And this is just my feelings that I had um, about it because I'm such a Missy fan. And I think there are different, there are like two main types of Missy fans. To me, you may disagree. This is to me. Okay. Like I feel they're what I call misdemeanor fans, right? Who are really into the hype image, the up-tempo tracks, and the surreal videos, all the dancing, all the heads turning around, all the, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, that's what they're a fan of. They're a fan of Missy is kind of like, you know, this like high-energy visual artist. And that's kind of what they connect to. And that is fine. I think that's the majority of people that call themselves Missy Elliott fans. Then there are what I call the just the straight, you know, not misdemeanor fans, but just a straight or not anti-misdemeanor, but just straight up Missy Elliott fans. Um, people who love like what she produces and writes and produces for other people, but people who see her as like a whole entity and um, of all that she does, like I said, with the writing and producing of other people and also the stuff that she does that you know, beyond the hits, but stuff that just has a real vibe to it in the mid-tempos, and I put myself in that category. I be, I even have, um, and I'll put this on the, um, I'll put this on the Craig's Pop Life website, but I have a whole playlist of like 35 songs, just of songs that are written and produced by Missy. No Timbaland, well, maybe Timbaland's involved in some of them, but, you know, it's mostly written and produced by, um, by Missy because that's how much of a fan of, I just am of her song structure and everything like that. And to me, you know, I, of course I appreciate the visuals and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the upbeat, you know, hits, but to me, I'm really more about the mid tempos and the ballads. Like I'm about a beat me nine one one. I'm about a best friends with Aliyah or a man undercover with Aliyah. I'm about a you don't know with little Mo. That rhyme didn't intend it to, but it did. I'm about good lord. I'm about a higher ground. Sometimes that song gets me up out. Like if I'm feeling down, can't get up out the bed, or just you know going through something. Play higher ground. Higher ground just gets you right. Um, I'm a nothing out there for me with Beyonce type of Missy fan. And you know, his, this is one I really, really regret and I wish she'd re-record. One of my favorite songs by her in terms of like a sexy little groove and stuff like that. I love That's What I'm Talking About um, from This Is Not A Test, but obviously I can't listen to it anymore. I really wish she would re-record that with somebody other than the person that I'm not even going to name. Um, and I feel like, you know, 
the Missy fans, the fans of those types of Missy songs, have really been the most starved in the 14 years since the cookbook. And the cookbook wasn't really even a favorite of mine. Um, because since 2012, she's been releasing singles, I think, trying to relaunch her career. You know, I think each one, they intend for it to be a hit and for it to launch an album. But unfortunately, none of them did any numbers, so none of them justified launching an album. Because, you know, launching a Missy Elliott album is not just some little thing. I mean, it's an international campaign. It's money, 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 money. So you want to make sure that the audience is there for that so you can get the return. But moreover, I think just in the context of her career, you don't really want Missy to ever have a flop, right? So all those things are at stake when um, Missy drops. And that's why there have been so many singles and no albums. And then, of course, never forget that she's also struggling with Graves' disease. You know, so that's... um, something that obviously slowed down the process as well. Incidentally, my favorite of all these singles was um, 2012's Triple Threat with Timbaland. I'll put that on the Craig's Pop Life website, which still sounds very current to me. But I feel like the misdemeanor fans, they got where they're from. You know, Q, Pharrell, Lil' Produce, Joint, Fine. You know, I'm sure some people really, really love that song. It was not for me, but I'm sure some people really, really loved it. Um, And they got I'm Better. Neither of which were hits, but I feel like if you really just like that up-tempo, you know, type of Missy, then I feel you probably got into some of them songs, and they all came with hype videos. Like, I really like the I'm Better video. So, you know, and since she stopped having these kids and the videos and everything like that, you know, in terms of Missy Elliott videos, I really wish she would work with, um, with... Um, Hype Williams again, because to me, like the She's a Bitch video and like the Hot Girls video and all that kind of stuff, those gave me something that I know the Dave Myers things, um, like the Work It and the um, all that kind of stuff. I know those are supposed to be cute and everything, but I I kind of want to go back to just I like the big epicness of Missy. So just a personal opinion. But, um, you know, and as these singles were just coming out the whole time, I'm just hoping that one is successful enough so that she puts out an album because I know that's where I'll find the cuts that I like best, you know. And that's why I was so excited. Like I said, at 2 o'clock on Thursday, she tweeted, I'm dropping a collection of new songs, exclamation point. Okay, not just I'm dropping the new songs, period. She said, I'm dropping a collection of new songs, exclamation point so i'm thinking what i am she's really gonna be dropping a collection of new songs you know emphatically and then she did on i think this was on instagram she released clips from the new video so it's like oh shit so we we getting songs and we getting the video damn like you know and obviously this is just an anticipation of her getting the mtv um video music vanguard award um on monday so obviously she just wants something new to perform and she wants something to be able to people to be able to buy something new when they get see her give her that attention on the stage so you know it it makes it's a good business move um so i got really excited because i figured that even if i didn't care for the single and the video that there would probably be something for me in this so-called collection of new songs exclamation point 
So midnight comes, and the first thing I do is watch the premiere of the video um, for Throw It Back. And I was immediately pleased. I mean, as always, I appreciated the visuals. You know, the colors were on point. The um, jump rope double dutch braids, that was hot, a hot look. The bald-headed homage to the She's a Bitch video. You know, so all that. So I was into it. And the other thing, like, I was really surprised that I really liked the song. You know, it was kind of like that sort of trap beat that you can, um, you know, you can just nod your head to it. Or at the same time, if you really want to dance double time or something, you could also do that. So I thought that that's a really good tempo. A lot of songs these days have that kind of tempo. Um, and I thought the lyrics were fun. You know, she says, I did records with Tweet before y'all could even tweet. Which is funny, but at the same time, I don't feel like anybody under 25 is going to get that line, but it's funny. Um, and then in a line that sort of looks forward to the um, much-deserved upcoming Vanguard Award, she says, so many VMAs, I could live on the moon as she's standing on a moon set. So, so as her assistant said, or her social media manager said online, she had a budget. So money well spent. Um, but the most important thing that I feel about the concept of the song and why I think it has hit potential is because the whole idea of like throw it back, I think it can apply to so many situations. So I feel like that's a good context for a song that's going to go up the charts because the more people that can, the more situations it applies to, the more people that can relate to it. So I feel like throw it back. It could be old heads like me just feeling like we're throwing it back because we listen to a classic artist like Missy. But you could also be dancing, throwing that ass back, throw it back, throw it back, throw it back. You know, so that's that's part of throwing it back. So it can be played in the strip club. She's just throwing that ass back, getting the dollars, throwing that ass back, getting the dollars. You know, you know I know about that. Um, or you could be throwing it back like, you know, you got brown liquor in a glass and you're just throwing it back, you know. So I, I really feel that it's a multi-purpose concept and I feel like that's a good setup for a good hit. So for a hit so after watching the video i was pleased and i raced a title to listen to this collection of new songs exclamation point um now i did don't know be honest like when i read the tweet and i saw the exclamation point like i don't know how many songs i was actually expecting like it was no particular number in my head you know i mean part of me thought and had hoped, really, that it was a whole album, and she was just calling it a collection of songs, exclamation point, just to take the pressure off. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't, you know, so, uh, Missy Elliott, new Missy Elliott album comes with so much expectation where, like, a Missy Elliott collection of songs, exclamation point. It's kind of like, okay, this is a collection of songs. This is, she's putting out some things, but it's not, we don't have to be looking for, like, looking deep for themes or continuity between of the music or anything like that we can just enjoy this particular collection of these songs exclamation point um but look whatever i was expecting i sure the fuck <laughs> wasn't expecting just five tracks including the single and an acapella of another song i I didn't have, I mean, high expectations, but I certainly didn't think I was basically just going to get four songs, you know. Um, 
But what, whatever, you know, I mean, to have four songs at one time by Missy is different than having these, because we've gotten four songs probably in her over the last decade or so, but it's been like one song every couple of years. So to have four songs at one time, it's still something, I guess, to celebrate. Um, but, you know, just looking at the number, as far as the types of Missy songs I like, the sort of mid-tempos and the ballads, I didn't really have high hopes, you know, because I knew already one was kind of the up-tempo with Throw It Back, okay, fine. And then I put on Cool Out, and it's cold, you know, it has, um, it's a little different from her, it has kind of that Be More or Jersey Club sound, like she's doing her, like her updated modern take of Doo Doo Brown or something like that. Nothing wrong with it. Like I said, I mean... I don't really listen to Missy for those types of songs, even though they're mo her most commercially successful type of songs. But fine, you know, I, I, I'm not mad at it. I'm not necessarily putting it on repeat now, but I'm not mad at it, okay? So then Drip Demeanor comes on, and I was instantly like, oh, shit. This is my type of Missy mid-tempo beat. I mean, and then right off the bat, Missy starts talking nasty like I like. She's like, um, he just want to get me hot. He just trying to get my twat. What? I was, oh, woo. I almost need to play higher ground. This cleanse my ears from just the opening lines. Because that was giving me, taking me back to, um, pussy don't fail me now. Like from Pussycat. Y'all remember that? That was giving me, taking me back to that. So I was like, I'm on. I'm down with this song. Just, and we ain't but... 30 seconds in or so, and I'm down with this song. And then comes this dope female vocalist, apparently called Someone. Um, and she comes on for the chorus. And I don't know who this sis is. Uh, couldn't find anything about her on Al Gore's internet. She kind of sounds like Kalani, but maybe a little raspier something. But, but she just rides this fucking beat like she's been in the game for a long time like she's just singing and riffing and everything and it is hot and so now someone goes down as another great female vocalist that missy has introduced um our way you know joining along with nicole ray little mo tweet um and just on sidebar, that's another thing I just love about Missy. Because she always tries to put new talent on. And to me, that can, I think she always remembers herself, you know, with, with her, with her um, group, Sister. It wasn't called Sister at the time. What was it called initially? I'll tell y'all on, um, I'll tell y'all on, on, um, the next show, because I'm going to be talking about Missy on the next show, too. But, yeah, the group initially wasn't called, was it called Girls' Time or something? I don't know. Anyway, um, but when she was singing for them, they went to a Jodeci concert, and they waited behind the scenes after the Jodeci concert, and they sang for Devante Swing, and he was um, impressed. So he wanted to bring Missy up to New York, where he had a whole... Um, sort of production situation where he had a lot of people working like Stevie J was around a lot of people like that and she said she'd go but she had to bring her buddy Timbaland around so it's like for with for, without the audacity of Missy Elliott without the audacity of this young black woman going out there and getting hers we wouldn't have we would never heard a temp from Timbaland you know and also her being generous enough to reach back and be like no you can't just take me you have to take him and then you know 
unfortunately, for a long time, working under Devante, her talents weren't really being utilized. So I think she probably, I think she thinks about all those things when she um, faces a new talent. I, you know, I just figure all those things go through her mind. Like she's thinking what it took for this person to do that to get to her. But then I also think she understands, um, you know, she actually just puts the person on, you know, and in like this situation where this is her new, um, her new first new release in London, she could have had Mary sing that hook. You know, she could have had anybody. She could have had Fantasia sing that hook. She could have had Monica sing that hook. She could have had a lot of people sing that hook. And maybe the song would have instantly gotten more um, attention. But instead, she has a new artist sing that. So I just think that's so special about Missy. Now, the last song, the last song before the acapella of this particular song is called Why I Still Love You. And it's one of her classic soul tracks. It's very similar to stuff that she's produced for folks like Fantasia, folks like Angie Stone. And I really like the old school vibe. You know, as I'm listening to it, I like that immediately. And I think it's going to grow on me. I really like, I really feel it's catchy at the end where she starts to sing that she'll be all right and everything. So I'm, I'm liking the prospects for me liking that song um, after already loving um trip demeanor um and so then on this collection of songs exclamation point um it ends with an acapella um of why i still love you and i'm not really sure why that's the case um i don't know if she wants people to like remix it and throw different beats behind it or anything like that I mean, you definitely can hear kind of the doo-wop-ish background vocals better and understand that influence of the song by listening to a cappella. You know, it's also a way to focus on Missy the vocalist as opposed to Missy the rappers. So that might have been the reason they put the a cappella on. They may have just wanted five songs just because four seems really, really skimpy after, you know, all these years away. I don't know. But anyway, it's... The acapella's on there. And overall, you know, after recovering from the shock of so few songs, I'm really pleased because it gives me the kind of Missy songs that I've been waiting for since, like I said, like 2003's This Is Not A Test, which is one of my favorite Missy albums and probably her least commercially successful one. But it is what it is, and I like what I like. Um, But in any event, I'll be discussing Missy much more in my MTV Music Awards post-show that I will do right after the awards. And so um, be looking out for that sometime on Tuesday. So next I wanted to talk about a, um, a situation, a situation that happened 400 years ago. <laughs> and I wouldn't be here if this had not happened. And a lot of y'all listening would not be here either. Um, there's been a lot of reporting on it. So many of y'all know what I'm talking about that around the 20th of August in 1619, a British ship carrying around 20 to 30 Africans who'd been captured as slaves docked in Port Comfort um, in the then British colony of Virginia. Settlers from Jamestown bought the Africans as slaves, thus setting off a chain reaction of events that would come to define life on these shores, essentially. 
you know. And as the New York Times wrote in the special New York Times magazine issue devoted to what they call the 1619 Project, um, they wrote, America was not yet America, but this was the moment it began. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the 250 years of slavery that followed. And of course, you might be thinking, oh, I know, you know, we know, we've read enough stuff. We know the lingering effects of slavery and stuff like that. But it really, I mean, the stuff in the New York Times Magazine really gave me a different perspective on some things. Um, Here's what they also write. Out of slavery... And the multi out of slavery and the anti-black racism it required grew nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional. Its economic might, its industrial power, its electoral system, diet and popular music, the inequities of public health and education, its astonishing penchants for penchant for violence, its income inequality, the example it sets for the world as a land of freedom and equality, its slang, its legal system, and the endemic racial fears and hatreds that continue to plague it to this day. So basically all this shit went down um, because of that first ship. And, you know, I guess the shift here that I feel like is happening both in the times and in a lot of things, and therefore is kind of very much influenced my thinking, is the shift here is like to not less necessarily think about slavery mostly in terms of the effects that it had on black people, but really to see slavery as being foundational to the establishment of the whole country. Therefore, it affects everything. And that's, you know, of course I knew that, but it's like, Oh, now, you know, it's just one of those things like a kind of a reminder and an expansion of the um, an expansion of how many ways it impacts um, us to this day. So and this I just found really, really interesting beyond the sheer inhumanity, of course, of buying people as slaves. This act also really established an appetite for crime and corruption among business owners and the moneyed people in this country because the Africans that the Jamestown folks um, so-called bought from this British ship had been stolen. These The British peop- ship, they were pirates, and they had stolen these people off, the, off a Portuguese ship that had taken the people from, a- and from Africa. So I'm just like, ain't that some shit? Like, okay, so... You steal, you buying people from, you buying people as slaves like you're buying some shit off the back of a truck. Or I guess in this case, from the back of a ship. Like, that's just crazy to me. Um, And it really does say so much about, you know, the foundation of the values of the business class and the moneyed class, hence the ruling class of this country. And we can see countless ways of how this, you know, cutting corners, stealing shit, you know, not giving a goddamn about the humanity and lives of other people, we can see how that is so fundamental to large corporate business practices um, and the way so many of our businesses, you know, like they um, 
farm out stuff internationally and paying people damn near, you know, people were paid, but damn near, you know, below poverty level. So there is, it's just keeping in that same um, tradition of keeping the worker down in order to build up the company. And it's, you know, it's just deep and just not, and, and just not giving a damn about people's lives, you know, not giving a damn that these are people. So, and the perceptions of the African-Americans on the ship, um, I'm sorry, of the Africans on the ship really helped establish um, attitudes about black people that lacks to, to this day. Now, this was something, this was something I learned, and this actually um, got a lot of this from, because I'm simultaneously reading um, Ibram X. Kendi's excellent How to Be an Anti-Racist. I'll talk about that more in a, 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 a more, more detail on a later show, but I got to got this from that, and, you know, put, I'm putting all this stuff together that I just happened to be simultaneously reading. Okay, so the Portuguese had captured um, these 20 to 30 people in Angola, okay? And over time, and um, people from Angola would become the most traded ethnic group in the country, okay? Incidentally, this is just a side note, because I, you know, I immediately went to check my Ancestry.com to see, you know, how, what percentage of my DNA was from that particular region of the continent, and I'm about 20% from around those parts, so just so you know. Um, but the thing about it is because so many Africans from Angola were here as slaves, they weren't the most valued. And American settlers thought the people from what is now Ghana were, according, and this is according to one planter, the best and most faithful of our slaves. So can you imagine being valued because you're considered faithful as a slave. That's just, ugh. And then on the auction block, um, the people, like, again, from what's now Ghana, took about, brought in about twice as much as enslaved people from Angola. And part of this had to do with the idea that um, people from Angola weren't hard workers. So this is what another planter wrote. Angola Negroes are brought from those parts of Africa where everything grows almost spontaneously. So the men never work, but live an indolent life and are, in general, of a lazy disposition. Now, so just think about the fact that people from Angola were the first Africans to arrive here, later to become the largest groups of, group of Africans enslaved here. And think about the long-running stereotypes of black folks being lazy and how that affects everything from black employment rates, which directly impacts the, the income of black households, and it affects government policies like public assistance, where it's often assumed that you only need public assistance because you're lazy and you're not working hard enough and all that. And I'm thinking all of this can be traced back to that first ship that landed in 1619 and just and the way people thought about people way white people thought about people from Angola so it's a lot and I recommend checking out the entire issue on the New York Times um, website I'll put the link on the Craig's pop life website but the great thing about the project is that it doesn't just focus like I said on the implications of slavery for black people but instead for the entire nation, what would become the United States of America.
And this is by um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who goes by Ida Baywells on Twitter. And she kind of helped put the whole project together and stuff. And this is what she say. The United States is a nation founded on both an ideal and a lie. Our Declaration of Independence, signed on July 4th, 1776, proclaims that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But the white men who drafted those words did not believe them to be true for the hundreds of thousands of black people in their midst. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness did not apply to fully one-fifth of the country. Yet despite being violently denied the freedom and justice promised to all, black Americans believe fervently in the American creed. Through centuries of black resistance and protest, we have helped the country live up to its founding ideals. And not only for ourselves, black rights struggles pave the way for every other rights struggle including women's and gay rights, immigrants, and disability rights. So that's what I'm talking about, just really seeing it's like, wow, you know, we as black people actually allowed the um, those foundational ideas about the country that all men, men are created equal and everything like that. I mean, we are the ones that made those words true. Those white founders, they have, may have written the shit down, but they weren't really repping for those words all the way. We are the ones that made those words actually mean something. And um, as she states in the title of her piece, she says, Our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false when they were written. Black Americans fought to make them true. Without this struggle, America would have no democracy at all. So... Deep, 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 deep. Um, other things the issue takes on that are interesting, like I said, I think you should check out the whole, um, it's worth checking out the whole issue. But other things it takes on is like how slavery um, affects current issues such as um, the obstruction that goes on in Congress, uh, the traffic in Atlanta because of tr people trying to get away from black folks. Um, and then... This just bothers me so much. Ideas, how much of slavery, how much that slavery um, gave birth to ideas about physical differences between black and white people. And this is the reason why black people are still misdiagnosed and not given effective pain management because there was a sense going back to slavery that black people couldn't feel pain or felt pain less than white people. Therefore, to this day... When we go to med before medical professionals, it's oft our pain is often not believed. So we get misdiagnosed, we get sent home, we get um, no medicine, like, you know. And this happens over and over again where our pain is not believed. Or we, and then we have to justify our pain. And then now we're, we are nastier. Now we have to get loud and everything like that. So now we, you know, it's just ridiculous. Um, but that goes back to the, that whole issue of they would even display um, 
somebody's back that say had been whipped alive and was just totally scarred with um whip scars and they would display and take pictures of that person's back and everything and say oh a white person could have never you know got, withstood all of this why don't, why don't we try and see you know but that would be the kind of thing that they would do to reinforce this notion that um black folks didn't feel pain in the same way and it's also part of the perception, you know, that black people are larger and they're more more powerful than white people. Because obviously that justifies us being in the fields and us doing that kind of physical labor. So to this day, that is why when they, they've done tons of studies and stuff where people will perceive a black person to be older, bigger, and therefore stronger than a white person of the exact same size and body type. And that's why cops can get all, cops can kill us, shoot us all kinds of ways, and then get off from being um, prosecuted because they say, ooh, I was scared, ooh, I was threatened, ooh, I felt, you know, ooh, they were doing something, it's just the way they looked, just, they was just black, you know, that is an excuse that's gotten so many cops off because of this perception that of these physical differences that don't actually exist. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, this essay, another essay that really, really affected me was about um, the economic le legacy of slavery for black people. And this one is by Tremaine Lee of MSNBC, if you watch MSNBC as much as I do. And he discusses the struggles of black entrepreneurs from Reconstruction through at least the late part of the last century, all of which helps explain why the median family wealth for black people is $17,000, $17,600, okay? And as opposed to $171,000 for white folks. That's fucking crazy. And, but, you know, he shows why this happened. And he shares this one particular story that really has haunted me ever since, um, ever since I read it. And I'm just going to share a little bit of it with you. So he talks about this man. Let me just read it. Um, Elmore Bowling, whose brothers called him Buddy, was a kind of one-man economy in Lodesboro, Alabama. He leased a plantation where he, and this is a black man now, he leased a plantation where he had a general store with a gas station out front and a catering business. He grew cotton, corn, and sugarcane. He owned a small fleet of trucks that ran livestock and made deliveries between Lotusboro and Montgomery. And at his peak, Bowling employed as many as 40 people all of them black like him. Okay, so this man was entrepreneuring and he was empowering other black people by giving them an income. So he was doing, I mean, he was doing, you know, people talk about, oh, we don't lift our people up. Or, oh, we don't do, he was doing exactly what he should have been doing. And he was, um, in terms of being a responsible, ethical black person, Black entrepreneur. I mean, he was doing what he what needed to be done and bringing in that money and supporting not only his family but other black people in the community. Okay, but now 
I'm continuing back to read. One December day in 1947, a group of white men showed up along a stretch of Highway 80, just yards from, from Bowling's home and store, where he lived with his wife, Bertha May, and their seven young children. The men confronted him on a section of road that he had helped lay. So on his damn road, they confronted him on his road and shot him seven times. Six times with a pistol and once with a shotgun to the back of the head. Oh, oh no, a shotgun blast to the back. I don't know if it's head or not, but a shotgun blast to his back. The family rushed to the store to find him lying dead in a ditch. Okay, the shooters didn't even cover their faces. They didn't need to. Everyone knew who had done it and why. And this is what somebody told the um, newspaper at the time. He was too successful to be a Negro. Now, what Tremaine does in the story is look at what this did to this man's family and to the community. Because right away, of course, the 40 brothers and sisters he was employing, right? They no longer got no jobs because the man's not there. And there's no income. Um, his wife had to start working at a dry cleaners. You know, she hadn't had to work before because he was bringing in that money. And then his kids had to drop out of school because they now needed to support the family and to do all sorts of, you know, they couldn't afford to just go to school. So fast forward to the modern day. And this is what, remember, this happened in 1947, okay? And this is the modern day. Seventy years later, the effects of Bowling's murder are still felt by his children and their children. There was no inheritance, nothing for my father to pass down because it was all taken away, says um, Josephine Bowling McCall, the only one of Bowling's children to get a college degree. Of the seven siblings... Those which, with edu more education fared best. The men struggled the most, primarily working as low-paid laborers. Okay, their father owned all of that. And they, their legacy, because of the, these murderous white men, was that they are all primarily working as low-paid um, laborers. And of Elmore and Bertha May's 25 grandchildren, only six graduated from college. Of those, two are McCall's children— um, the daughter that had was the only one that went to college of the initial of the um seven initial children, and the rest of his twenty five grandchildren are unemployed or underemployed. They have never known anything like the prosperity of their grandparents. So you you know you wonder why. The money is different. White money is different than black money. This is why. And, um, you know, it's just, it's really, really stunning to see how deep and systematically what was taken, you know, stuff was taken from us. And not stuff we got. Like, we're not even talking about 40 acres and a mule. We're not even talking about that. Okay. We're talking about shit that people actually legitimately, I mean, this man Leased his plantation, got his trucks, employed these people. Stuff that he did on his own. And, like, that was taken away. The same way they burned down Black Wall Street. The same way they burned down towns and stuff like that. If it ever looked like black people were getting too prosperous. 
So, you know, it just, it's really deep, but, um, I'm going to keep it going. I think this one would be is going to be of particular interest to a lot of people that listen to this show because it is about music, and um, it's by Wesley Morris, and it's a really great article. It's called, For Centuries, Black Music, Forged in Bondage, Has Been the Sound... Let me run that back. Okay, For Centuries, Black Music, Forged in Bondage, Has Been the Sound of Complete Artistic Freedom. No wonder everybody is always stealing it. Ain't that the truth? And this is his explanation for um, for why it represents um, such freedom. He says, Particular to Black American music is the architecture to create a means by which singers and musicians can be completely free. Free in the way, free in the only way that would have been possible on a plantation, through art, through music, music no one composed because enslaved people were denied literacy, music born of feeling, of play, of exhaustion, of hope. And you know, that's why the, when you look at um, the African American tradition, so much of it is rooted in coming out of improvisation and everything like that. I mean, so much about it in terms of like, you know, the blues, not the you know, blues always change. People would add lines, take lines away, you know, based upon how they were feeling and putting their little, you know, everybody had to have, that's the black thing. You had to put your stank on it. You know what I mean? Your individual stank on whatever you're doing. That's jazz. You know, you might be taking a Broadway show tune, but you're going to do your way, put your thing on it, whether or not it's, you know, old school jazz or bebop or whatever, and then you take it into the um, you take it into the soul days. Like Aretha Franklin singing Eleanor Rigby is not the Beatles singing Eleanor Rigby, but th- what she's doing to it is nothing that you could put down in notes, right? It's not part of the composition, but it makes the song entirely different, entirely changes the meaning, entirely changes everything about it. And then you get the improvisation, you get it with hip-hop, you know, and how hip-hop evolved out of the freestyle and everything. So that's just really deep. And it's really deep to think about how it, how much of that is, um, comes out of music being that artistic thing that could be done without literacy. You know, so you can't, so people couldn't sit around and be diarist, right? Because you couldn't write a, re- a reading thing. So what are you doing? You you can make music. And that makes me think of, you know, like also within hip hop, artists like Jay-Z and um, Biggie not writing down their lyrics, but but it being a, um, it being something to, uh, commendable, the fact that they could compose everything in their heads. And when you think about that and you think about the original um songs by enslaved people yeah they had to make that whole shit up in their heads too and remember it in their head and it had to then be spread by people remembering it and everything you know and that makes me think of how much if you think of Big's Juicy like how much that's still sort of a cultural um a sort of a um 
it's it's you know it's it's almost a, knowing the lyrics to Juicy are kind of a test for how deep you you are your roots are in hip hop culture because I think they do that with like new inductees to the NBA or something or I could be completely wrong I don't know sports like that but I do know that that was a test on um, making the band uh, Diddy's making the band once it, whether or not they knew all the lyrics to. Um, Juicy and just thinking that knowing all the lyrics to Juicy is a thing really sort of puts value and returns us to thinking about that whole oral tradition. So very interesting to me. Um, and he argues that the reason why black music is so stolen and borrowed by everybody and their grandmama's grandma um, is because of this idea that it is rooted in um, in survival, in hope, in those things he's talked about. He writes, this is the music of people who have survived, who not only won't stop, but also can't be stopped. Can't stop, won't stop. Music by people whose major innovations, jazz, funk, hip-hop, have been about progress, about the future, about getting as far away from nostalgia as time will allow. Music's that, music that's thought deeply about the allure of outer space and robotics. Music whose promise and possibilities, whose rawness, humor, and carnality, just like that Missy song, right? Uh, call out to everybody, to other black people, to kids in working class England and middle class Indonesia. If freedom's ringing, who on earth wouldn't want to rock the bell? Right. Um, so, yeah, because so really you think about it, like freedom in so many different, how black music offered freedom in so, historically it's offered freedom in so many different ways. It's from freedom from the exact notes, the exact lyrics, the exact song, but also freedom in a certain way, like he said, about the topics, about um, being able to be more open about sexuality and just human shit. I mean, that all comes from the blues and comes from talking about um, real life shit. But one of the things I love most about, I think this is going to be the thing that I end up using the most out of this essay, and y'all should read the essay for this reason too, is that I really love when he discusses white artists who are influenced by black music. Um, you know, and he kind of has a great way to test their investment. To, he has a great metaphor for their investment in it. You know, like he writes Tina Marie. He writes about Tina Marie that she sang like she knows her way around a pack of Newports, which I'm sure she did. Um, and he has a great metaphor for like white folk, like I said, for like white folks who do black music. He says that some, you know, like Tina, are homeowners. They hear. They're in black music. They invest it. They make well make sure the neighborhood's right. They're part of the neighborhood, you know, association, everything like that. They know the peoples. They go to the barbecues. They at the park, that same grocery store. They homeowners in black music. Where others are just renters. Maybe they Airbnb in the shit. You know what I'm saying? Like for a temporary time, and not really. You know, how you Airbnb. You not. You know, you whatever. You might be grubhubbing from another neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? You you don't live there. You just Airbnb in. And um, I thought the whole thing about homeowners versus renters was a really interesting um, way to think about um, 
non-black artists who do black music. So that's the New York Times issue, and apparently they're going to continue doing stories on the topic, so that should be interesting. But, you know, after I read this, I, and it took me, it probably, probably took me like four or five days to read, well, maybe like three of them, to, to read this, because A, it's long, but B, it's just a lot to take in. And so after finally finishing it, and like this rush of new information and the connections, I mean, it was really overwhelming, you know, in some ways traumatizing, like learning about the, the thing about the um brother who lost all his whole business and how it affected his family and a whole lot of emotions. And so, you know, at some point I just started thinking, okay, now I know all this stuff. What am I supposed to do with it? So to help me kind of deal with this question, I turned to um, another recent essay. This is from New York Magazine, and this is um, a really great essay too that also is commemorating the um, the 1618 to 1619 um, ship. It's called, it's by Casey Gerald, and it's called The Black Art of Escape. 400 years have passed. Where do we go from here? And he, he writes, because he's talking about people that like were questioning why would we as black people even be talking this much about, you know, this slave ship from... 1619. And he writes, so he's, this is a conversation he was having with somebody. Okay. Why, one asked, would we celebrate becoming slaves? And he said, we are not, I told her. We are marking the birth of a new race of people, our people, enslaved and all. We take a backward glance at them to enact a future vision for ourselves. I'm going to say that one more time. We take a backward glance at them to enact a future vision for ourselves. And then he goes on. This is deep because, you know, a lot of people grew up hearing this um, part of this phrase he talks. He says, I do not believe that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. I do believe they are our greatest hope. And I really felt that after reading um, all of the essays in the Times because, you know, it's like whatever our ancestors went through, they survived. You know, even like that situation with that man's family where they took his business and stuff, his, he has 25 grand to do, they survived. Things can get better, you know, um... And that's, I think, what we need to do as we face our challenges, which are basically just modern. You know how they re rebooting shows, uh, TV shows and movies and stuff. The shit we face now is just a modern reboot of the same old shit. You know what I'm saying? But we have to survive. You know, we have to survive this. We have to continue to make our art make our lives matter, fight this fight that makes the country own up to its ideals. In a large way, that's on us. We took that on from the beginning, so that's kind of on our backs. And um, Casey also writes, he's like, the most radical act we can commit is to be well. 
so just really think about that when you're going through as sometimes like he talks about this sometimes this might mean tuning all this stuff out but it's like to survive you have to be well so sometimes as black people we just need to focus on our wellness and our well-being and draw on the strength of our ancestors that survived basically raised up a country on their backs including everything about the country from the economics of the country to cuz if it wasn't for if people didn't if if people around the world did not think that our country was trying to live up to those ideals then our country would have never been respected around the world like it is and that's on black folks you know that's on the civil rights movement and everything where people feel like they could have a chance here you know at least a chance to fight at least a fighting chance some places around the world you don't even have a fighting chance but those words the declaration of independence that gives us a fighting chance and as black people we fought for that shit and continue to fight for that shit you know, and then culturally and just how much um, American popular culture, especially music, um, is influential around the globe and how much that is rooted in the music made by enslaved black people. So I'll just leave y'all with that as food for thought. Like I said, I'll put the links to these things on um, the website and it's deep reading, but it is important reading, you know. And on a lighter note, I'll be back with you on Tuesday morning, or I hope it'll be morning, Tuesday sometime, um, for my MTV Video Music Awards after show. And we're going to talk everybody. We're going to talk more Missy. We're going to talk Normani. I hope so. Just so I hope you, if you have not watched her motivation video, I hope you go watch her motivation video before you know that's your homework get ready for the mtv music awards because that video is so black ass so physical so dynamic um it's just you know it's just amazing um we're gonna talk megan the stallion because she's gonna be performing at the um pre-show which i hate i hate when they put rappers that are bigger than so, I mean, I don't even know all the people that are on the main ass show, but they're putting Megan the Stallion on the pre-show. So that's the kind of bullshit. And then uh, Big Sean is performing, and you know, he's very, very cute. So I will be watching closely at his performance. And I also really like Big Sean's music. So I'm ready for a new Big Sean album as well. Um, so until then, if you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. You don't have to write nothing. Just push the number of stars. And if you know of someone who might like the show, please share. So until the um, MTV show, y'all, be cool, be kind, be creative, and in the words of my fave, be your damn self. <laughs> All right. I love y'all. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to y'all soon. Bye.